Thank you, Lucy. Um, good morning, everybody. Good morning if you're watching uh, online. Uh, make sure you've got your Bibles open to that passage that was just read to us from 1 Peter chapter 3. I will flag for you already that I will not be going to the really tricky bit that just follows. That's not because I'm dodging it. We're going to have a look at it in sermon seasonings tomorrow. Uh, but let me pray for us. Our loving Father, um, you are good and you are our God. Uh, from your word this morning, please instruct us on what is good. Equip us to stand in your grace and to live it out. Amen. Well, what is the good life? The kind of life that at the end of that life, an objective declaration could be made to say, that was good, that was good. Of course, the verdict of our society, and to be honest, most societies throughout the history of the world on what a good life is, would be it'd, be, it'd be a life that's full of good things. That's what a good life is. Uh, those things being health and wealth and success and relational happiness and reputation and experiences. Um, TV programming will give you a very quick picture as to what Australians certainly desire for our lives, what we think is going to be good for us. I think about what is so popular in rates, the living room, the voice, MasterChef, the block, getaway, the bachelor. Notice that you don't see TV programs called Great Desk Jobs of Australia or, uh, or movies entitled The Endless Workday. No, we want an endless summer, don't we? Ultimately, the truly good life on this measure seems uh, to end up the experience of only a few lucky individuals. The rest of us are really going to just have to fight over the scraps, <coughs> pardon me, and settle for good enough and desperately avoid really bad. But what, what if the world is not where you belong? What if you've actually been set apart for a glorious inheritance by the God who made this world and who is actually the one that will be giving the objective verdict about the goodness of a life? Well, as Christians, we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And 1 Peter chapter 3 tells us that the good life is the one that God wants us to live. And it is very different. It's not a life of grasping after things. It's a life of giving. The good life is one that rests on, stands in, testifies to and holds out grace. Now, the verses that we're looking at today, we need to understand a continuing Peter's argument that he started in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. You might, might remember, if you, you can feel free to flick back in your Bibles and have a look at it, but you might remember that there, Peter spells out that as aliens and strangers in the world, we've got two duties, to rid ourselves of sinful desires and to live such good lives among the non-believing world that we might silence any accusations of wrongdoing and hopefully lead some of the people in that unbelieving world to become people who do believe in the Lord Jesus, that they might glorify God too. Those two directions, those two duties. 
Well, we've seen last week on how those duties play themselves out in authority relationships. But now it gets much broader. Look at how Peter begins it. Finally, all of you. And Peter shows us four areas where we're to live out this good and gracious life. Firstly, Christians are to act graciously towards one another. So Christianity is not just about how I am to act in the world. It is about how we are to act and do it together. And it begins with how we treat our fellow believers who share our identity in Christ. Have a look at verse 8 of chapter 3. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Now, that's just one verse but we're going to be spending a bit of time in it because it's a very important verse. Peter presents us with five descriptions and at every point, the behaviour is gracious. Now, these five descriptions in verse 8 are kind of like an onion, right? So, one and five go together, two and four go together and then number three is the central idea in truth as well as in action. And so, let's look at the core of the onion love one another. I mean, you know the old saying that blood is thicker than water, that there's, there's loyalty, there is obligation to family that is stronger, goes deeper and should endure more substantially than any other relationship. The idea is the same blood is going through your veins. Well, the word that's used here is that for brotherly love. And so, Peter is reminding us that we are a spiritual family, where Christians are a family that will endure beyond even our earthly families. And so, this deeper love should be characteristic of the way we act towards one another. We really are united in Christ and brothers and sisters in Him. Well, the next layer out speaks about how we're to feel. So, firstly, we're to be sympathetic. Now, if you're like me and you struggle sometimes to remember the difference between what is sympathy and what is empathy, um, you can look it up on Google later, but you can also relax because in the Greek, the same word is really covering both concepts. Um, Being sympathetic here means entering into and experiencing the feelings of one another. It means that we make an effort to understand what another person might be feeling. We put them ourselves in their shoes. Now, think about what this does. Sympathy stops us from running insensitively over the top of other people's feelings. You just don't do that if you're sympathetic. It stops us from being self-absorbed and purely concerned with our own feelings and desires. You see, sympathy means that we actually consider how our actions might affect someone so that we can just adjust our behaviour accordingly and be helpful and love them. Uh, Remember, it was Jesus who said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And so, in that sense, it is an essentially Christian virtue. Or the other feeling we're to have for each other is compassion. So, Christians that care so deeply about our fellow Christians that the suffering of one 
becomes the suffering of another. The joys of one becomes the joys of another. You see, that's what compassion actually means. It means suffering with. As Paul says in Romans, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Now, I want us to spend a little bit of time reflecting on this one. If you really think about it, a Christian should never feel abandoned or friendless, should they? It, it, it shouldn't, I know they will, but it, it shouldn't, it shouldn't happen. There should be no such thing as a Christian who is alone in their suffering or their grief and, and not just because God is with them, but because their brothers and sisters are meant to be with them. The rest of us should be on the lookout for one another. So, let's get straight to the point. Do you know anyone who might be suffering or struggling in this way? Or feeling the pain of of loneliness? This is an important question to ask, especially now, isn't it? When we can easily get used to not seeing people because of isolation... And on one level, that gives us every excuse because we go, well, we're not seeing one another. You know, our weekly gathering where we all get to see one another is not happening. And while for those who have larger social networks, that may or may not make so much of a difference. But others right now might be feeling tremendously isolated and you might be sitting there at home going, yeah. They might be going through hardship and facing it alone. And sure, we do our best with our church structures to see to people's needs, but it's no substitute, nor should it be for every Christian eye and every Christian heart owning the responsibility proactively to look out for one another. Do you know anyone who is going through some hard times or might be feeling particularly alone? I'll tell you one thing. Is one. If you have a friend who lives in Victoria right now, this would be a great week to give them a call. They are really locked down, aren't they? Or someone who doesn't have Christian family or Christian spouse to encourage them along in the faith and is going, where are my Christian friends and family? Maybe even actually ask God to convict your heart about someone that you maybe should be reaching out to. One thing about sympathy is that it's actually a two-way thing. The obvious direction is from the one who should be showing sympathy, right? We're, We're all to have an interest in the well-being of one another. If you don't know somebody who is going through any hard times or who might be, is it because there isn't anyone... Or is it because sometimes the level that many of us relate to is a little superficial? Now, especially with men, it can be the case that we talk so much about sport or work and stuff that we don't actually get to know one another beyond our opinions on things that are out there. Our best mate could be having a crisis in their faith, really struggling with some sin, 
or be in some emotional pit and we may not have any idea because we never ask. Do you know how your Christian friends are going? Do you actually know? Could you answer that question? Do you need to perhaps deepen your Christian relationships a little or even a lot and start to ask more questions and take more of an interest? But it's also important, you know, that those experience hardship, who are experiencing hardship, show grace towards others too. See, sometimes the problem that we can have is an unhealthy guardedness about ourselves. I know it can be hard to to give, really hard to give, when you're feeling burdened under something. But sometimes we keep everyone at arm's distance so that we never have to open up and and share of ourselves because we don't like to talk about it. Or sometimes it might be that we don't want to, we don't know how to deal with a pain of other people and so we just keep things at a distance. But you know, that can mean that when the hardship hits us, we get hurt that people don't seem to be reaching out. But they may not know. Or even if they do, they might be uncertain about whether you want them to reach out to you or not because they're so used to getting the fend that they've learned to just assume it and that somebody else is probably doing it. And do you see how what we're doing is we're, we're actually making it harder for them to love us? Are you yourself in that situation? And can I encourage you, let your brothers and sisters be there with you. Actually ask them to pray for you, whether in groups or with a trusted friend. Don't just wait for them to say something. Feel free to ask them for help. We need to humble ourselves in that regard and not be too proud. Share your prayer concerns when you're being asked for them and be real. If you're suffering or struggling, don't just say, oh, my prayer point is I'll pray for work and I'm feeling a bit tired at the moment, when you're sharing. Be real. Now, they may not be able to solve what you're going through, but they can love you and they can pray to a very powerful God who can help you. And often when you're suffering, it's the time when you're struggling to pray. We'll get an army of people praying for you. God has given us one another, so let's embrace that gift and be gracious in both directions. Now, to the outside layer of the onion. This is the layer which describes the way we're to think. And firstly, we're to be like-minded. Now, this is not a unity that's based on a common doctrinal statement or a form of worship or the name on the board out the front of the church. It's It's not a standard that is applied from the outside. It is a unity that comes from a genuine love for one another and a common desire to see Jesus on it. But this is only going to be possible if we also think rightly about ourselves. We need to be humble. Because if you want to think about it, the biggest hindrance to unity and community is pride. See, pride's why people refuse to back down. It's why people keep the walls up. It's why people will keep fighting for things that they actually no longer care about just because of the principle of the thing. Pride is what stops people working together. It causes conflict within churches, divisions in ministry teams. 
It hinders cooperation between churches. And pride is also, of course, the biggest barrier to reconciliation in relationships too, isn't it? But humility, think about that. Humility, on the other hand, is when one willingly relinquishes your own rights for the sake of others. And of course, humility is exemplified in Christ, who for the joy set before Him of seeing people reconciled to God, humbled Himself for our sake to death on the cross. Now, all up, if you think about those five things together, it's not a bad onion. I mean, imagine if everyone in church treated one another like that and dedicated themselves to those things. How good would that be? If we all worked on treating one another this way, how easy would it be to respond in kind and create a culture where this happens? But it's not always that easy, is it? Acting graciously is fine when others are trying to do the same. But what about when others are being abusive towards us? Well, the second thing this passage tells us about how we relate to others is that we're to act graciously even in the face of abuse. Look at verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Now, the word for blessing here is the word that we get eulogy from, all right? It means a good word. This is talking specifically, there's a couple of words in the Bible that talk about blessing. This is specifically talking about a verbal blessing. We respond to words that are intended to harm with a word that will bring good. A verbal version of living such a good life that those who accuse you of doing wrong might actually change and glorify God instead. And why? Well, so that you may inherit a blessing, a good word, the commendation of your heavenly Father. Now, this is something that is thoroughly radical in our world because if someone kicks you, you kick them back. And if someone abuses you, you abuse them back. The gloves come off because you got the right, don't you? He started it, she started it, they started it. If you've been offended, then you have every right to react. Grace, on the other hand, is all about not giving people what they do deserve. It's about showing kindness to the undeserving. And so we are to bless even those who abuse us. Well, well, what does that mean? What sort of good words are we talking about? Um, There's a great place in Proverbs, it's Proverbs 15, I think it's on the screen. Um, He gives you a bit of an idea. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise adorns knowledge, but the mouth of the fool gushes folly. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. The soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. Do you notice how this good word is not just being placid? It's not just being nice in response. There's actually genuine giving going on here. A gentle answer that's designed to turn away wrath. Um, Wanting to adorn knowledge and bring input. Um, 
What about the idea of the, the idea of soothing people? That 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 idea of bringing a a therapeutic goodness to someone. And listen to the sorts of things that Jesus mentions in Matthew five. Um, he's just already talked about you know if somebody um, you know says, says you know carry my cloak, you, you you give him your other cloak. If they say carry this, you say you, for one mile, you carry it for two. He says you've heard that it was said love your enemy, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I tell you love your enemies. And what are you doing? Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. So when Peter talks about bringing blessing, he means real blessing of the kind that you've actually received, that we've received. It means offering forgiveness. It means praying for people. It means even sharing the reason for the hope that you have, which we'll be saying more a bit about later. But do you see how radically different this is? And yet, how liberating. You see that? It's liberating. I mean, instead of the abuse being this weight upon your shoulders and and getting you down, instead of letting anger and resentment and bitterness build up and fester and poison you, you get to respond with love and grace and forgiveness Which of those better describes to you a good life? Well, God's way, doesn't it? The gracious way. But it's so hard to do, isn't it? How can we do this? Well, it's because our hopes and our aspirations don't reside in in earthly things. As Christians, our lives don't revolve around our possessions, our achievements, our egos, or even our physical well-being. Our lives revolve around pleasing the God who has given us everything and has done done so much for us while we're awaiting in absolute certain hope the eternity of perfection with him. That's the new life we've been born into. We've been given a bigger picture. We've got a mind on eternity. We live to please someone other than ourselves. And so things that might threaten those temporary and earthbound things while they might sting at the time, don't strike into our hearts because our hearts aren't in those things. Our hearts lie in being God's faithful people and our longing is to have him say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's our hope. That's the good word that we long to inherit and to hear. And that's why Peter quotes Psalm 34, verses 12 to 16, verses 10 to 12 of 1 Peter 3. Now, he's quoted this psalm before too. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, But have a look at those verses and notice the strength of the connection also with how and what we speak. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And I want you to notice the context of Psalm 34, we who have just been sitting in 1 Samuel. All right, that's the psalm that David wrote when he was before Abimelech, the king of Gath. 
David, the Lord's anointed, living in the very presence of the nations, like an alien and a stranger, like we are. He was in the throne room of a Philistine king and he was terrified about it. And yet it's the song of an alien and a stranger who faced with very real fears and hostility placed his confidence in the Lord, sang of his confidence in the Lord. Having God watching over you and knowing that, having him attentive to your prayers, gaining his blessing is the good life. What's more, Peter says in verse 13, if you're eager to do what is good in any way, you know, who's likely to seek your harm anyway? And the implied answer is no one. And generally that's the case. Because if you act in a way that's above reproach, guess what's often going to happen? You'll be, not won't be reproached, right? Because you're living above reproach. But even if you do, Peter says, guess what? You're blessed. It's the normal word for blessing this time. Remember what Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what you're going to get. Peter says, we're not to fear what the world fears, because once again, we've got a bigger picture. We fear and reverence God. We, we know the true king of everything, the one whose judgment really matters. And in verse 15, the new NIV has, revere Christ as Lord, but the old NIV is closer to the mark. We are to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. It's the word for making holy. In other words, he's, God is to have a dedicated place within our wills and our emotions. There is to be no one or no thing there besides him. No rival. See, this is not a call merely to acknowledge Christ as king, but to live your life in single-minded, wholehearted commitment to Him. He is set apart as Lord right here. And so because of this, the third thing this passage tells us is that we're to act graciously when challenged about our hope. And once again, the way we speak is going to take centre stage. We're to act graciously towards those who question us by pointing them to Jesus. Now, it's easy, isn't it, to get offended or defensive or prickly when people challenge what you believe or make accusations against you because of what you believe. That's natural. And even when they're just asking us for the basis of our belief, we can get intimidated by it. I might have mentioned this in a previous talk, but um, I studied geology at university and I remember there was a lecturer on the mechanics of the Big Bang uh, in fourth year and he was, the lecture was going on, he was demonstrating how tight the theory was. He was normally a pretty genial kind of guy but then out of the blue, in the middle of the lecture, he looked straight at me in the middle of the lecture and he knew that I was a Christian and he said, see, I don't see why you need a God at all. Singled me out in front of the whole lecture theatre. And uh, there was this pause. And I just froze. Uh, it caught me so off guard. I was, so, I was just writing down notes and thinking about, you know, what he was talking about. Um, that I, I, I had nothing to say. Of course, I thought of a dozen things to say immediately after he kept moving on with the lecture. 
not least how much I was thinking about the, how the very same facts that he was talking about made me go, gee, isn't it so obvious that there is a God, right? I was coming up with the opposite conclusion from the same set of data. But at the same time, I said nothing. I had nothing. I wasn't prepared. I was intimidated. Peter says in verse 15, always be prepared to literally give a defence to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Now, it's where to be actually on the lookout for opportunities. We're trying to do our best to be, be ready to take the moment when it does come. We're to be prepared to give the reason. So, ask that question of yourself, and people will have varying answers to this. Um, do you personally feel prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you about the reason for the hope that you have? Is it yes? Is it no? Is it sometimes, depending on what they ask? I figure there's three main things that can make it hard for us to tell people about Jesus. I mean, we could do a whole talk on this, but briefly, fear, sleepiness, ignorance. First and foremost, fear, the obvious one. We're afraid to pipe up because we fear the way people are going to react to us. We fear rejection or ridicule or the loss of respect or even perhaps even just the spoiling of a relatively pleasant, easy moment. We can even disguise our fear by convincing ourselves that they probably won't be interested or the time's not right or I don't want to be pushy. Whatever form it takes, we often stay silent because we're scared. And look, I think just briefly, this passage has got two bits of advice for those in this camp. First of all, don't fear what they fear. That's what the rest of the world is afraid of, those things. But we have done what? Set apart Christ as Lord in my heart. In other words, it's kind of saying we've got to go, actually, you know what? I want to be more eager to honour him than I am to protect my own honour in the world's eyes. He is set apart as Lord in my heart. And so, so pray for courage, even in the moment, and step forward. Be brave. But the second thing is, let your love override your fear. Have such a heart of, for those who are lost, because you actually know a hope that they don't. So you know what, what, where they're headed. So have such a heart for those who are lost that you long, you're so eager to look for opportunities to share with them how they can be saved. The second thing that makes it hard to tell people about Jesus is sleepiness. Uh, you're never awake <laughs> to the opportunities when they present themselves. You're too busy walking through life occupied by your own interests and you've kind of forgotten how urgent the gospel is. If that's the case, then you need to wake up and actually see things clearly. It's not going to comfort you doing that, let me tell you. It will unsettle you. See, sometimes dozing off to the fate of the world is a form of spiritual self-medication. But truth is truth. We need to wake up to the destiny of those who don't know Jesus and we need to be vigilant for opportunities to tell them about him. And the third thing that makes it hard for people to tell people about Jesus is actually ignorance. 
we just don't feel like we know what to say. We get all tongue-tied. We don't know where to start. We don't have confidence about how we can answer those questions. Now, to some extent, this is actually the easiest to overcome. Really. It really is. Learn. Learn. Learn a presentation that clearly explains the gospel. If you've got questions that you don't know answer, ask them of someone who you think does know the answer and ask them again and again and again until you can go, "Mm, all right, that actually makes sense and I think I could articulate that to somebody else. Follow it through to the point where you're clear in your head and, and pray. You know, remember, God is the one who saves people and he works through flawed people like us to do it. So there's a sense where being a Christian actually involves work. I, know, I, I don't really mean to be patronising that. I mean, it really kind of does. Sometimes we've actually got to do some research. We've got to do some reading. We've got to educate ourselves so that we're equipped to do what God's put us in this world to do. Because that happened to us once and we get eternity out of it. Maybe you could be the one that someone else might be able to gain eternity because you've introduced them to Jesus because you did the work to know how to do that. The gospel is the power of God to save, so pray that he'll give you the words to say. But perhaps the best advice I can give is actually to keep it simple. Remember what you're doing. You're giving a defence for the hope that you have. Did you notice those words? You've got the hope already. It's your hope. It's yours. You know what this hope is because you have it. You're not being asked to tell them why they should believe, but to give the reason for why you do believe. God is the one who convicts them why they need Jesus, just as he did for you. You've got a hope. They don't. Just tell them what it is. You already have it, in other words. For we're not to sit there meekly and silently when people challenge the gospel or question our hope. We're to put up a defence. But we must act graciously here as well. We are to put up our defence with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience. We must not forget that we represent Jesus at the very moment that we're telling people about him. We're to be gentle and respectful in our manner always and honest and truthful in our method. For God's eyes are upon us. Proclaiming the truth should never be used as a justification for being rude or obnoxious. Yes, people will reject the truth of the gospel. Yes, they might end up being hostile to it. But woe to us if they reject it because we presented it in a harsh or disrespectful or know-it-all way. Our behaviour should be such that any who speak maliciously against our good behaviour in Christ should be ashamed due to their baseless slander. But ultimately, we've got no right to act with anything other than grace. Because the fourth and really the most foundational thing that this passage shows us about the way that we're to relate is that we're to act graciously because God has shown astounding grace to us. It's got to be our way of operating. We live only because of grace. We have a relationship with God only because of grace. And consider what that grace looks like in the first part of verse 18. For Christ suffered once for sins. All our sin gone. No more, all of it taken away. The righteous one, him for the unrighteous ones, us. And why? That he might bring us to God 
that we might enjoy eternal life. You know, that's grace. That's undeserved kindness. It's what we enjoy. I mean, how could we receive that and not be the same towards other people? We are so blessed. So let's be a blessing to all of the people around us. Live the good life, the kind of life that's so good, so right, so honourable, so glorious and so important that the Son of God chose to live that way. So let's sing and reflect on the peace that we can know in all of our circumstances from a life lived under God's grace and seeing that it is well with our souls.